0: Hello, welcome, and thank you for joining us in the Restorative Lens podcast, where we bring together voices in the restorative justice community to share insight, practices, and perspective.
1: Each series of the Restorative Lens will be focusing on different topics within the field of restorative justice and give a space to hear from those who are most directly impacted or involved in the work.
0: The Restorative Lens is supported under the National Center on Restorative Justice, and we are your hosts.
1: I am Tomei Douglas. And I am Alana Ojibwe. We're so excited to share with you the launch of this first series, which features the voices of several authors from the book Colorizing Restorative Justice. Colorizing Restorative Justice is a collection of 18 different essays by 20 practitioners and scholars of color exploring the issues of racism and colonization within the field of restorative justice and restorative practices.
0: We hope you enjoy listening.
1: So I would love to hear or have you share a little bit more specifically about your chapter. Um, And I think, you know, you mentioned this um, maybe before we started recording, but it's interesting and symbolic, I think, to me that you know, you said this is in some ways kind of a standalone topic within this colorizing restorative justice book. Um, so, you know, the title of your chapter um, being "Undoing the First Harm: um, Settlers in Restorative Justice." So, can you talk a little bit about um, first, just setting the context for what um, what you describe as being the first harm, um, and and how that is not um is, is absent in a lot of the conversations and practices um within this field of restorative justice.
2: Sure. So and, and there's a very good comparative here on um y- you know on on one hand, like I say, I, I had been involved with um RJRP somewhat on the margins over because of my association with LJP over the past 17 years. So I had a sense of the um I had a sense of of the field itself, and actually I've gone to some uh, circles or some of these uh, smaller conferences or seminars. And I think what struck me the most was as an indigenous person going into these circles, one, I, I didn't see a lot of people of color and certainly did not see a lot of indigenous peoples. And then what was actually talked about in those circles, and it, and it, and I I realized that as I began to actually do the book, you know what we scholars always do, you know if we have access to JSTOR or our thing, or those kind of databases we can do searches. So I I went ahead and you know put out the um, search terms restorative and justice and uh um practices, restorative justice. You know, I probably downloaded 75 articles and I started reading. It was very apparent that that field in its beginning was pretty much white-led, white-ran, and white-articulated. And then that showed up in the circles that I would go to. You know, so I was connecting these dots. And one of the things that struck out that stuck out to me was um, we yeah in restorative justice that that main principle of of addressing harms as a result of wrongdoing you you could hear you know, read in the literature and in some of the few circles that i've been involved in is was um, yeah, they're addressing harms, but mostly in the criminal justice framework of things victim offender and you know, those words, those terminologies um going out of use, but at the time you could see, you know, a perpetrator and and the person that was harmed. So so you could see a lot of uh that detail happening on an individual level. And I, and I and as an indigenous person, um, I was um Going like boy, this is really interesting to be in a circle and hearing about addressing harms as a result of wrongdoing. I, as an indigenous person, sitting in a circle of settlers, why isn't the first, I, you know, why isn't the 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 first harm being addressed? And I didn't call it the first harm at that time, but I was saying there's an ongoing and unaddressed harm. And so when the book came out, I, I went back to that. They even started um, articulating it more and just said, look, for restorative at least as an indigenous person, for restorative justice to have any credibility, any legitimacy, any gravitas, you can't be talking about unaddressed harms maybe at an individual level and and resolving conflict that way or undoing the harm that way. What about the more systemic issue? Like I I call land theft the first harm.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Certainly the enslavement of people as a second harm. And those go unaddressed. So when I was you know being indigenous and going into these circles, it was just becoming almost um morally disingenuous to be sitting here thinking that this is all cool. People are addressing harms as a result of wrongdoing, but they're not addressing the most fundamental first harm, which a lot of other harms result from that. Mm-hmm. So that's that's where the origin of that thought came from, just to talk about that first harm and recognizing that as a result of settler colonialism, we have settlers in restorative justice. And so the challenge I laid out there was, if you mean what you say and say what you mean, I think you need to do this for the good of the field, for the good of the discipline, and for just justice in general. And it's been a bumpy road.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I'm. I'm curious your experience of I, you. You talk about it in the book, but I can imagine how challenging and and on settling it can be for you and for the people in those conversations to um how do you with rj practitioners bring up you know like at what point does it come up in the conversation to say hey there there is you know absolutely maybe another necessary harm that needs to be addressed but before that how do we have this have this conversation and um and i think it's also important maybe for you to describe a little bit about um, the term settlers colonialism and how that, how that differs um, than other, um, other forms of colonialism and, you know, in the field of, of RJ, how does that, how does that continue to be problematic?
2: Great question. Great question. Um, One of the things that makes and distinguishes settler colonialism is
3: the one fact is that settlers they came to stay. It's not like
2: your uh, mainstream kind of colonization where the British went into India for two hundred and maybe fifty years and eventually left. Or the French went into Algeria and after a period of so many years they left. Mm-hmm. And the colonization of the African continent by by Europeans—they left. So that's kind of like a, an exploitive kind of colonization, where they you know uh, they set up things and then and then the, the the colonizers eventually left. So that that's probably the the one familiar thing that people are aware of in international relations. After World War II, there was a lot of decolonization going on. So in that case, the settlers did leave, um, you know, and there's this, like, um, the kind of internal colonialism we always think about is, is where you have, uh, puppet regimes by another colonizing power. So we have those, but settler
3: colonialism is very distinct and that the settlers Stay. And as a result of that,
2: when settlers stay, and the history shows this and writings like uh, Verini and Patrick Wolf and those guys show that because settlers decide to stay, one of the some of the distinguishing features of that is they displace indigenous communities. And in the displacement, of those indigenous communities, they start their own national community. So you have Americans, for example, where that never existed prior to 1492. You have Canadians, Mm -hmm. you have Australians, and you have New Zealanders. So those are displacements of indigenous peoples, and in that displacement, they start their own ethnic or national community. And so settler colonialism intersects with things like race, for example. And that's, that, that's one of the intersectionalities. So that's what makes it really u- unique from, and sets it apart from other types of colonialism.
3: And there's, and there's certain things that we have to know about settler colonialism. Since settlers are here to stay,
2: and because of our indigenous peoples, the displacement of indigenous peoples is often referred to as the logic of elimination. In other words, there is inherently in settler colonialism, the disappearance of indigenous peoples.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And so there's, there's that component to it. And therefore, as Patrick Wolfe has uh, wrote in one of his earlier essays is Settler colonialism is a structure and not an event. So it's not a one-off thing. It's embedded in the structures of a settler society. So then you see that all the time. It it, it it's not it's not just the past, it's not just the present, but the futurity of settlers too. Mm-hmm. That whole system is to ensure that the disappearance of native peoples is the outcome
3: of that. And it usually means annexing and taking of indigenous land and then the elimination
2: of indigenous peoples. So one can do that deconstruction and say that's why Mm -hmm. um, settler colonialism is so different and so lethal. Um, And uh, you know I make, I make the proposition that as an Indigenous person or any Indigenous person can go up, just our very presence can unsettle settlers. And we don't have to say anything. We just walk into a room and they know we're Indigenous mm-hmm. and already the settlers are being unsettled. But mm-hmm. the very fact that any semblance of Native permanence disrupts that. Is disruptive, yeah. Because an Indigenous person like me might say, return the land. And boy, that whole thing just begins to crumble. So there's all these different kind of uh, structures that were put in place, like um, settler expectations, um, settler fantasies of entitlement. Uh, you know, we as Indigenous per- persons can 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 literally unhinge a lot of settlers just by the very presence because any 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 per, any notions of indigenous permanence really cast the whole legitimacy on a settler project right and that's why land claims you know <clears throat> can trigger a settler that's why when we talk about jurisdiction our own sovereignty it just you just can watch settlers become unhinged mm. because that was the bargain that they have made with that project.
0: I have a question, and it's, it's, um, it's related to what I keep either experiencing in certain spaces or seeing the pushback. And that's in terms of this whole idea of land acknowledgment. You know, so before there's this um, circle process that takes place, there's this land acknowledgement. How do you feel about that?
2: Well, there's a couple of things that can be performative in some ways, like, you know, just something you have to get through.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, but again, when I, when I talk to the Americans' cousins, the Canadians, on these kind of things, there's often a land acknowledgement. Some of it's performative, some of it's pretty benign. And then, so if we started with the land acknowledgement, you know, I'll tell you what comes out of my mouth. I, I would say, I am Lakota, I'm part of the Ocheke Shakawe. I'm in my homelands, which is occupied illegally by the settlers today. Mm-hmm. As opposed to this is the playground, or this is the traditional homelands of the Lakotas, where I work, live and play as an indigenous person. I just put the reality out there of the first harm, right? I'm in my homelands. It's settler occupied and it's illegal. Mm -hmm. Right. And that is, that is, that is a historical fact. And, and I'm reasserting my native permanence here that there is, there is an indigenous peoples here that can contest settlers. And then and then, of course, the, the, the settler fragility, as I've been calling it lately, in, in relation to white fragility, settler fragility gets triggered just by that process alone.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And uh, it can get quite interesting at times.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: But, but that land acknowledgement, I think it needs to be a little bit more robust as opposed to benign and performative. All
0: right. Thank you for that, because I feel like it's... Um it's almost like you talked about the fantasies it's giving this um beautification to something that was really brutal
2: oh yes i i i i think that that's just you know and and there's some you know some of the best literature about settler colonialism actually is coming out of canada i mean they they do a lot of really good work on settler colonialism and they do a very good job. And these are the settlers that are writing this material. So,
3: mm-hmm.
2: so you know, they're, 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 they're talking back to other settlers about this notion of settler colonialism. And it's very enlightening. And I use a lot of the work in my work because I think it goes mm-hmm. to some awareness on their part as being settlers and owning that identity. And then what, mm-hmm. the, what does that identity mean? Yeah, there's there's some interesting, um, you know, I, at times in these in these discussions, I, I do have you know settlers do get triggered, no doubt, um, and usually it gets down to the binary which racism and colonialism does. They always get down into these binaries of us versus them, and I and I hear that a lot. But I have to remind the settlers that you know Indigenous peoples and settlers, I mean geez we marry each other, we divorce each other, we have each other's babies.
3: Mm-hmm. We have
2: these relationships, and so so being a settler is not an either or. You can be a settler and help undo settler settler colonialism. It's a long journey, but but to be an accomplice in in decolonization, yeah, doesn't. It, it's just open to settlers, even so
1: one um example that you give I'm curious to hear more about because um well it, it's coming up more more i think abroad in australia new zealand but um but even in the u s and i'm I'm curious to hear your thoughts on um you know when you talk about um, when we're talking about land acknowledgement and land theft um what that looks like today um, and the ways that that is um, operating today. I'm curious to hear how you think restorative justice um, ideally could be used as a bridge to mend the harm of, say, um, you give the example of the Keystone Pipeline um, and a harm that, you know, is, is at a baseline built on the narrative that this land is, um, this land is already not, um, it's already someone else's. So we are entitled to do what we want with this land, um, pollute it, construct on it, all of these different things that impact tribal land um, and tribal people. And so how do you think for something like an environmental harm, um, as an example of something where this relationship is ongoing um, in terms of land, use and the ways that we all live on it, um, how could restorative justice be used to mend those kinds of harms?
2: Well, the way, you know, the the way restorative justice and restorative practices works uh, from the literature I read from, you know, the RJ and RP practitioners that I've I've come to know over the years is... um, you know, those that have been harmed have to have the space to articulate their stories mm-hmm. and, and what the harms have been. And now the catch in that restorative justice framework is, okay, you, you, you have the space to tell your story. And then, you know, the perpetrators hear their story, but it's up to those that have been harmed to say, this is what it's going to take to make us whole. And, that, and that's where restorative justice then can step in and say, um, so for example, if they say for the Lakota people, or the Oceki Shaku, which is the seven fires of the Lakota, Dakota, and Lakota people, if they say, okay, well, what, what, what would make you whole? What would undo the harm?
3: Return our land. That would be the litmus test. And I don't know are settlers in Rj really up to that mm-hmm.
2: because then a whole host of other uh challenges and issues began to arise out of that and so i I think that is at least for me as a Lakota, you know when I say, and I try to tell settlers you see we have we have we have several treaties with with Americans not with the US government but with Americans you the government is just your representative but they represent you and we have these understandings huh. and so when we look at like in my case the treaty of 1868 and it specifies our
3: national boundaries just to honor it hmm. just to honor it and of course that triggers
2: settlers because settler colonialism is about having no native permanence at all and so when you when your starting point is sovereignty mm-hmm. it it begins to immediately unravel settler colonialism and, and all the things that settlers have imbibed in over the years to to maintain that structure
3: mm-hmm.
2: so it, it 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 it's just not you know um Oh, we'll give you more money for education. Oh, we'll build more hospitals for your healthcare. Oh, you know, we'll 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 infuse and transfer a lot of federal monies to your to your reservation so you can have you know create create jobs or whatever. It's like no, just return the land. I mean, that is so basic and so simple. And that's the point.
1: Yeah, it's an interesting starting point. I think about it. Um, you know, for me, my my maternal side of the family is the Ojibwe tribe. And then I think about the flip side, my my dad's um side of the family is Homa Indian. And how do you how does that same process look for tribes that have no federal recognition? And it, it almost seems like the starting place is redefining what um tribal sovereignty needs to be defined as for tribes that that exist but don't don't meet the standards for what federal recognition would look like um it's just interesting and it makes me feel it it just feels like there's so many layers of of communities that are left out of this this conversation of what what harm has been done and how you how what's the starting point to repair that
2: But, you know, and I think, I think your insight into that is is very good. And we have to be very careful because the structure of settler, settler colonialism is to, is to, is to parse things like that out, right? Federally recognized. Well, and then you have state recognized. What about native recognized? You never hear that. What prevents the Lakota nation from recognizing another indigenous group? Mm-hmm. And, of course, what they're going to say is, well, that doesn't have that kind of uh, weight in, in the hierarchy of, of this uh, federal system. But once we start playing that game, you know, we're in the settler's home court. And, you know, they'll let us into the court, but they won't give us the ball to play with. So those are the kind of... uh Things that we have to consider before we even begin to sit around a circle and talk about undoing the first harm. You you raised some really interesting um, points there. One being, I know when we talk about land return, the settlers out in South Dakota, their first thing is what? They they say, give back, give back the land. And we have to say, just hold on a minute. We can't give back the land because it was never yours to give you can return the land because it's stolen property. And that's what you do is you return stolen property. So we have to be very nuanced in how we engage in the English language. Um, And so people like myself will, will make that point that you can't give something that never belonged to you anyway. So let's get rid of that. Secondly, you know, federal recognize Like, I know where it comes from and why it originated, but do we have to play by that game? No, we don't. If restorative justice is about addressing these harms, that might be one of the harms we have to talk about. And then we could go into this whole educative process, right? I noticed, um, like me, when I talk about sovereignty, I just say sovereignty. A lot of my colleagues use the term tribal sovereignty, and that's a default. Tribal sovereignty means, when you look at the martial decisions, dependent domestic nations. That's sovereignty. That's a compromised sovereignty. For me, the starting point is sovereignty, period. And move from there. And I know terms like Indian country have a lot of weight, too, in discussions like that. But what is Indian country? I mean, we just got to really do a lot of deconstruction of those terms, right? Um, You know, Indian country is, they use that in military terms. That's a hostile area. Don't go into Indian country. I mean, they use that in Iraq. They use that in Afghanistan. They use it in any place. The U.S. has a military presence. It's always like, that's Indian country. And yet, I hear that term used all the time in Native studies and in the legal profession. So let's just stop that. Let's just just say indigenous it and let's just say native country, even or mm-hmm. indigenous territory. So
3: we have to change the meaning of those words too. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Keep them coming. Boy.
1: <laughs> There's so many different, um, I, I want to be conscious of time. There's so many different things I um, would love to hear. Hear your thoughts on, and I wish this was so much more than uh, one chapter of this book. Um, I guess one one question before I hand it over to Tome is if if this was more than one chapter, if this was its own entire book. Um, I really love so on a on a practical level um, in our in our restorative justice program the master's program, it's really difficult to, um, to imagine how you summarize a learning outcome for, for master's students to say they've grasped the concept and understand what is understanding the first harm, truly understanding it. And what does that look like? So I guess my question on a, on a practical level, because I think it's so necessary is what. what would it look like for a for a student who's studying restorative justice to understand the first harm and include this um, in more common dialogue in restorative justice
2: well I, I i think I think to understand that first harm would have to be <coughs> some self reflection and assessment of of um
3: where you're at in that structure. So, <clears throat> um, it, uh, you
2: know, and, and, and being a university professor myself at times, um, you can do these little engagements um, that bring it, bring it to a, a focus. For example, um, I, I got this good exercise from a, a colleague of mine um, uh, another professor, and so I, I use this on, on occasion. But one of the exercises I do uh, with settlers is I often say, you know, what is the first thing you do in the morning when you get out of bed? And we go around the horn, right, around the circle. Um, and people say, well, I get up and read or I pray, I take a shower, or I go out running, and I go to the gym. And they all, they all say that. And I say, well, Ashley, the first thing that you do when you step out of bed in the morning is you step on stolen native land. That's the first thing you do. And boy, talk about triggers. Then you get all the denials. Well, my, you know, my, my parents came here in 1950, and this all happened in the 1800s. Don't matter. It's a structure. You still are benefiting from the theft of indigenous land. Mm-hmm. And then you could probably get an exercise. What benefits do you have? Do you own private property? Mm. Yeah. And so you get those benefits off this theft of land, and and uh, so so there are there are a set of activities that one can design that will push that narrative of self reflection, because mm-hmm. basically then you hold up the mirror and they see themselves in a way that. Well, again, unsettled, right? It starts the triggering process. But that, but that zone of discomfort is, is a place to be because it says something about how much maybe settlers have uh, internalized their, their settler privilege. And there's a whole series of different activities that one can do to bring that to fruition.
3: Mm-hmm. And then
2: so that, that awareness, that consciousness is the first place to start. Yeah. So that when you're in a circle and talking about the first harm, for example, um, in my chapter, I talk about maybe one thing that people could do in a circle to raise that kind of awareness. Um, it has to do with the talking piece, you know. Um, I
3: love that, the earth, talking piece.
2: But that would be, that, sure. and then when you, know, when you know something about circles and all the accrudiments that come, the talking piece and all that that's supposed to have some kind of, again, some gravitas in that. And so if that talking piece says something about indigenous people, it, it, brings, it brings it to fruition. And I often say it's, you know, when you do land acknowledgement, um, I think Tumea is right, I, I, when you do, who are the indigenous
3: people that are there? Because it's, it's like the hashtag, say my name. Say my name, and
2: not just Native American or indigenous people, but the actual name of the peoples that, occupy, <clears throat> that occupied or do occupy that land mm-hmm. so so those are the things that can begin to raise that awareness you know and and I don't know i, I really think that is a time to engage
3: and then um you know. Uh, Again, settler colonialism is just a thing that has risen out of the
2: last thirty years, and so people are still unraveling what that means and and, and especially the structure of it. Even Indigenous people internalize that colonialism, right? Mm-hmm. We, we got these things called in Indian reorganization at governments.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: My gosh, isn't isn't if it, if that is not the height of internalized colonialism, show me what is it? I mean, gosh, you know we. We act like these, you know, and, and I've sat on the, I sat on my national, I sat on my nation's legislature for four years under that system, and it's not a healthy system at all. <laughs> so I, I tend to think that that's going to be how we began to really, you know, come to terms with the deepness of settler colonialism because it's been going on for five hundred plus years, and it's just you just don't wash your hair you know overnight of it and all it takes it takes time but it's an educative process and it's a very uncomfortable process
3: mm-hmm.
2: yeah so so I do tell treaty people I mean I do tell settlers that they are treaty people too it's just not an old Indian treaty it's a treaty that that defies time. And so our descendants agreed to something and our, excuse me, our ancestors ancestors agreed to something. We're living that agreement today so that descendants can live that agreement. So we are treaty people. And that's what I like about the Canadian model is they've been able to understand that they are treaty people. It's not a treaty with the government. It's a treaty with the Canadian people as our treaties are with the American people. Very fascinating.
3: Thank you.
0: This is, I I sat here like um, a student in your class, <laughs> actually, because before you came on, I was sharing with Alana that I have a cousin who, since our grandparents passed, has been doing a lot of research. She actually changed her name and because um, we... My grandfather's from the Blackfoot tribe and my grandmother is from the Cherokee and we were talking about like our family doesn't acknowledge that, you know? Mm-hmm. And so it's it's like this identity that we don't have because we we have been colonized in a sense, you know. Sure. And and so before we um leave and end this amazing interview, which I don't want it to end, <laughs> but so I just want to ask, because I was thinking as you were speaking about, like, really um, self-reflection and on a micro level, because I'm thinking of in inside of the educational system. I've done a lot of work in high schools and middle schools, and, and they use this RJ and circle practice. Right. And, and what I've identified is that they keep saying it or using it as this tool to help the black and brown children and they use it as a tool for the other to become healed. And from my perspective, it's how about use it for self change? How about use it so you can become aware like you said of the the structural impact that it even has on the the way, you know, white educators engage, you know, non-white bodies in the classroom. Because study after study is showing especially with black girls you know, there's this, this reaction almost to, you know, um, black bodies as if, you know, they're just to be feared and not considered human. So it was interesting listening to you. And I know in your book you talked about self change, you know, as, as that process. So um, I just wanted to lift that up. And if you have any insight or feedback to that before we end, I would love to hear that. And and then lastly, just to find out, like, what are your hopes for people walking away from the Colorizing Restorative Justice book?
2: Well, I, I think the, that first question that you put out there, I think Colorizing Restorative Justice, the other chapters that were written really address that question of what, what do you do in those, you know, predominantly white spaces that uh, maybe, um, Re-traumatize people of color in those circles. Like, how do we begin to deconstruct the notion of, you know, black bodies being predatory or, you know, just that, just that default? So I I think a lot of times I hear when I've read in the book and read the contributors manuscripts was that, you know, they are voicing the reality. It's like, hey, this experience is real and you need to hear how this has impacted us and, 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 I mean, the last thing restorative justice wants to do is, you know, recommit the harm, intentionally or not. And so, I think that the book talks about these contributors' experiences, and they're trying to say, "Look, let's raise our level of consciousness. So when we go into these circles, we are much more aware of of maybe the microaggressions that we commit, and, and not and not really be aware of it. So that's that's one thing, the other thing about what walking away from colorizing and restorative justice um I think we just wanted to say like
3: there's a lot of work to do, and this is only the tip of the iceberg, and that um
2: we've got to understand that we have to. Have this kind of literature, especially at a time in the States when, you know, you have the Black Lives Matter, the school to prison pipeline, you know, the uh, criminalization of black and brown bodies. I mean, those are those are such a stark contrast today. And we see the polarity in this country, really a racial divide, Um, you know, and I think it calls the question just this American experiment that people have, you know. Mm-hmm put a lot of myth around that and idealized it and the fact is is the center's not holding anymore so people have got to do something mm-hmm. and so maybe it maybe in the bigger picture we we begin to have to engage each other um whether we like to or not i mean it's just it's just the survival of these communities now
0: mm-hmm. thank you for that feedback i really um i like the concept of the framework that you presented in terms of the first harm and then the second harm, and really being able to raise that up,
2: I just, you know, I just think we're we're moving into very uncharted territory uh, within the, the U.S. and perhaps Canada, and it's gonna that uncharted territory is you know whatever the guardrails or signposts that were there historically or maybe even in the last. 30 years, they've been pulled out, and so we're going to, it's going to be messy, but that's okay, to to, to have this messiness going on. Um, But I think the real thing is to have these much needed discussions uh, among communities of color and then whites, because
3: um, we just have to reset these relationships. And a lot has to do with white supremacy
2: um, and how to how to undo that, how to unpack that, how to deconstruct that, Um, because, you know, it's been said before, and I haven't been the first one to say this, but, you know, people, you know, white people's liberation is so tied up with people of color and indigenous people's liberation. If we don't have the liberation, they don't have the liberation. And that has, to, that has got to be driven home.
3: So anyway, Thank nice you. discussion. Wow. <laughs>
0: this was wonderful. <laughs> yes. Thank you for taking time to be here with us today. And we hope you stay tuned for our next episode. And for more information about Colorizing Restorative Justice or contacting the authors or learning more about the National Center on Restorative Justice and our partner organizations, please go and check out the link in our bio.
1: This project is supported by grant number 2020MUCXK001 awarded by the Bureau of Justice Assistance. The Bureau of Justice Assistance is a component of the U.S. Department of Justice's Office of Justice Programs, which also includes the Bureau of Justice Statistics, the National Institute of Justice, the Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention, the Office for Crimes, Victims of Crime, and the SMART Office. Points of view, images, or opinions in this document and are those of the author do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of the U.S. Department of Justice.